0: Uh, Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. Our passage for this morning is James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. There are few sins in Scripture as serious as, as the sin of adultery. It's listed right after murder in the second table of the Ten Commandments. Under the Mosaic Law, it was punishable by death. Well, it's this very sin that we ourselves commit against God on an essentially daily basis, only we do it on a spiritual level. And in this morning's passage, we're going to discover what are the causes and the consequences to this kind of sin. Uh, The passage, once again, is James 4, 1-10, and let's begin by reading this passage in its context. We're going to start in chapter 3. Uh, the second half of verse 10, and then we're going to continue through chapter 4, verse 10. Again, that's the second half of James 3.10 through James 4.10. James has just warned his readers not to become teachers because of the inherent restlessness of the tongue. Now James says this, starting in chapter 3, verse 10. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct let him show his works and the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and fights, or what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive, because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions." You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scriptures say he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God, There was once a tradition among the great families of Europe wherein, upon some great achievement or rise in social rank, uh, the family would be awarded a crest or coat of arms. I'm sure you've seen one of these before. Perhaps you even come from a family that has a coat of arms. Well, I'm sure you know that these family crests often told a story about the family's history or what the family represents. For example, just before her marriage to Prince William, Kate Middleton's family was awarded a coat of arms. It's a shield of red and blue decorated with three acorns and a chevron of gold in the middle, and that's all meant to signify something about the family. According to the BBC, the gold chevron is a reference to Kate's mother, whose maiden name was Goldsmith. The three acorns signify the three children that were born to Mr. and Mrs. Middleton, as well as the oak trees that grew up around their home. Again, the family crest is designed to tell a story about the family. There are all kinds of traditional meanings attached to the various symbols on the family crest or coat of arms. Uh, Various colors, for instance, symbolize uh, different virtues. Uh, White or silver signifies peace or sincerity. Blue, truth and loyalty. Red is meant to convey strength or courage. Uh, If there's a horse... On your shield, it's supposed to represent your family's readiness to serve the king. A lion, you might guess, represents courage. A lamb, gentleness and patience. Anchors represent steadfastness. Torches signify truth and intelligence, and harps symbolize sound judgment. You get the idea. Well, these family crests often also had a motto, which communicated something about the values of the family. For example, on the coat of arms of the British royal family, there's a Latin phrase that translates as God and my right. And that's supposed to signify the concept of divine right, that the royal family has a legitimate claim to power given to them directly from God. That motto has sometimes been altered by various monarchs. For example, uh, Queen Elizabeth used instead uh, the phrase always the same while Mary I used the phrase, truth is the daughter of time. Mary I, you may recall, was the daughter of Henry VIII's first wife, Catherine of Aragon. Henry wanted to divorce Catherine for her inability to produce an heir, but the Pope refused to grant him permission, so Henry embraced the Protestant Reformation and had the marriage annulled apart from the Pope's permission. So Henry tried to cut Mary out of the line of succession, more or less. Well, Uh, Mary later uh, assumed the English throne anyways, and once on the throne she attempted to overturn the English Reformation with such violence that she later earned the nickname Bloody Mary. So you can probably imagine what she meant by truth is the daughter of time. From her perspective, time had already revealed who the true heir to the throne ought to be, and time would likewise soon reveal the true faith. It's a motto that proclaims vindication. That was the theme of Mary's reign. Well, suppose that Christianity had a coat of arms. What do you think would be on it? In particular, what do you think the motto might be? As I got to thinking about this question this week, it started to occur to me that uh, the different authors that we encounter in Scripture would probably be described by different mottos. Uh, Paul, for instance, would probably carry the motto, By grace alone. Or perhaps even in Christ alone. The Apostle John might be characterized by in spirit and truth. Matthew might have used the phrase, to the end of the age. Do you know what I think James would have used? I think it's the phrase, integrity and love. Integrity and love. That's the phrase that I think captures the essence of what he's trying to communicate here in this book. Those are the two things that he's really passionate about. Integrity and love. Although, I I must admit, I don't think James would see those as two different things, as integrity and love, as if those two concepts occupied two completely separate spheres. He would see love, rather, as the expression of one's integrity, as the proof or evidence to the fact that a Christian has integrity. Integrity is an interesting word. It's most commonly used today in association with truthfulness. Someone who always tells the truth, we say, they show integrity. The judge or the politician who refuses to prefer justice for the sake of a bribe, we say, as a man of integrity. Uh, But the meaning of the word actually goes beyond that. Its root is the word integer, which, if you can remember from math class, is a whole number. This was the original meaning of the word integer. It was an adjective that meant whole or entire. Integrity, therefore, also refers to a state of being whole or undivided. This is why we sometimes say that a bridge or a wall that's about to collapse lacks, quote, structural integrity. The cracks on the surface indicate that the structure is no longer whole and is is therefore no longer structurally sound. It's, It's weak and it will soon collapse under the pressure. This is really what we're saying when we say that someone has integrity. We're saying that they are morally strong and upright. We're saying that they're of such a consistent nature from one moment to the next that their moral drive is so unimpugned by other desires. It's it's so pure, so unmixed with the desire for money or power or some other pleasure that they cannot be tempted to lie, for instance, or to pervert justice. There are no cracks in their character, no divisions to create an opportunity for moral compromise. Again, they're consistent, they're whole. This is a concept that James is is greatly concerned about in this letter. And the reason goes back to his understanding of God. While while James never expresses the point explicitly, implicitly it spills out in practically every paragraph of this book. The the Bible tells us that, that God is one, and so this means that the creation should be a cohesive whole. There is one truth which comes from one God, one law which was delivered by one lawgiver. And so every aspect of creation, both the external actions of a a person as well as their internal desires, they're all to fall under the purview of this one great king. Of course, the world is not structured in this way today. Sin, of course, has made sure of that. James very much sees a divide in God's kingdom between the order of the heavens, which submits to God's rule, and the order of the earth, which rebels against it. This divide, James understands, is the work of demonic forces who wish to attack this God of the heavens by sowing division and chaos in His creation. But for the redeemed... For those who are the first fruits of this creation, for those whom the Christ has saved, so that they might be restored and, and give honor and glory to this one God. It's only fitting that this people be marked not by division and discord and confusion, but by the unity and harmony and peace that is characteristic of the King of Heaven. The redeemed are being made new through the gospel, and thus their conduct, not only individually, but as a church, ought to represent their newness. They ought to reflect, both in their persons and in their relationships, the oneness of their God. And so when James sees cracks starting to show up in the church, he's concerned. Divisions are not supposed to characterize the people of God. And that's what's happening to the people he's writing to. They're experiencing incredible stress in the form of trials, but rather than bear up under these pressures as a cohesive whole, conflicts are arising in the church. The body is starting to fracture and to break. And as James sees these divisions forming, he senses that a collapse is coming. The structure is about to fail. If you think about it for a moment, one of the tremendous benefits of the unity of the church is how it enables the church to withstand trials together. You go back to the book of Acts, for instance, and early on you can see that the church was able to endure incredible persecution in part because the body pulled together and they faced the trial as one. They watched out for one another. they prayed for one another. They even sold their possessions and put them into a common pool for redistribution to those who had needs. Now the pressure of the trial was great, but their love for one another was greater. And it allowed them to have the strength to persevere through these trials. James, of course, was witness to all of that. He was a part of that persevering church early in Acts. And as he writes to this group of Christians, he apparently does not see that kind of attitude on display in the church at this time. Instead, it would seem that they're in conflict with one another. They're not not trying to take care of one another. They're responding to the trials by trying to watch out for themselves only. James presumably understands this isn't going to work, and so he writes this letter in order to address these fractures. He wants to see these divisions healed so that the church can continue to glorify God as they bear up under the pressures of these trials. And so he writes in order to explain to his readers what needs to be done to patch up these breaches in the wall. Thus far, James has been explaining why these fractures are a problem. That's the first step, right? To, to help his readers simply acknowledge that there, isn't, that, uh, that there even is a problem. After all, they're not going to be very motivated to fix something that they don't think is broke. So James starts here. He starts by showing them why these fractures are an issue. And he's done that by demonstrating how division is not representative of sound doctrine. How it does not reflect the gospel. And neither, for that matter, do the actions that have been leading to those fractures. All of it is contrary to sound faith. And so James says that it must be addressed at the risk of eternal condemnation from God himself. So salvation is at stake. That's the motive that James uses to help encourage his readers to deal with these fractures. We're now at the point in this letter where James is starting to discuss what needs to be done to prevent and heal these fractures. And this actually started last week when James issued a warning to those seeking to become teachers in the church. Teachers, of course, are always going to be instrumental in the church's conflicts with one another since they're the ones responsible for settling the disputes that arise within the church. This means that it's absolutely critical that the men who aspire to these positions must be men of integrity, men who are, as much as possible, pure in their desires, since if they aren't, they'll be tempted to show partiality among brothers and further fracture the church with their judgments. It's With this in mind, that James pleads with his readers to be slow to aspire to these positions because of the great damage that they can do with their tongue and to therefore only aspire to this role after their speech has been made pure by a renewed heart. This week, he now turns his attention to the body as a whole. And here he starts explaining where the roots of these conflicts are and why they're taking place, and what the real solution to their problems will be, therefore. And this is where I think we really need to start paying attention. After all, yes, the tongue is a problem. I mean, James started to address the problem of the tongue back in chapter 1, and he's going to to continue to address it, uh, and the critical role it has to play in conflict and the rest of chapter 4 and even into chapter 5. So we definitely shouldn't ignore the tongue. But all the same, chapter 3 is mostly about how the danger of the tongue should restrict who seeks positions of leadership in the church. I would imagine that's probably not relevant to the vast majority of the church. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, that that passage isn't critical to the health of the entire church, because after all, James' point is that the speech of just one member has a tremendous impact on the entire body. Just as there's a, there's a sense in which the teacher is the tongue of the corporate body of Christ. They're the mouth, mouthpiece. And so just as our individual tongues serve to stain the whole body with the vial that they spew out, in the same way does this little member of the church possess the power to stain the whole. Leaders do exercise a disproportionate influence on the church. So the previous section is for us, no doubt, but at the same time, it's not really about most of us. Today's section, though, is different. Here, James turns his attention to the body as a whole, and he begins to address the role that the individual members of the church are playing in these conflicts, how they, as individuals, are contributing. And that's, I think, really important, because we all experience conflicts, do we not? Now, the context here is church conflicts, it's disputes among brothers. And this happens in the church all the time. Factions can sometimes develop within a single church. Or disputes can even sometimes arise across churches as they disagree with one another. But the implications of this this passage extend so much further than that. The truths that James explains here are, are universal in scope. They describe what's true of all creatures. So the concepts here are are just as applicable to conflicts that occur in the church as they are to the conflicts that occur between a husband and a wife, or a parent and a child, or a brother and a sister, or between co-workers or neighbors or friends. In fact, it's probably fair to say that all Conflict that occurs between believer or unbeliever, sacred or secular, it can all be described in the same way because the truth that James spells out here is descriptive of all people. It describes how we're all made. Remember, James understands that there aren't two different types of truth, one that applies to the believer and then another for the unbeliever. No, there's only one truth which governs all things because there's only one God and Creator of all things. So both the believer and the unbeliever make a grave error when they fail to conform to this truth. So where are these conflicts in your life coming from? Right? You all experience conflicts in your life. Where are they coming from? All of them. That's what James explains in this morning's passage. And again, I can't stress enough how incredibly relevant that this explanation is to the conflicts that occur in your own life. In fact, if there's a passage that I use more often in counseling, then I'm sure I don't know what it is. So consistent this passage is in explaining both the source and the solution to the kinds of problems that so often arise in relationships. I'm going to break this passage down into three parts. First, James addresses the source of his reader's troubles in verse 1. That's the source of his troubles, verse 1. Then in verses 2 to 6, he explains the reason for their troubles. And finally, after explaining the dynamics at play in these troubles, he gets around to explaining the solution in verses 7 to 10. And please note, by the way, that I use the word troubles here rather than conflicts, because as we're going to see here, James understands that these conflicts are more the symptom than they are the disease. There's something deeper going on here which is giving rise to these conflicts, and that something has to do with the trials that these Christians are experiencing. And that's what James is attempting to address. He's trying to help them navigate the trials they're experiencing, not just simply resolve the conflicts. That's why I use the word troubles. It encompasses both the suffering of the trials and the conflicts arising out of that suffering. So the source, the reason, and the solution to their troubles. And given the importance of this passage and the relevance to your consistent application of the gospel, I want to cover these points over at least two and I think probably even three weeks. And we're going to begin this morning by looking at just the first of these three points, the source. So what's the source of their troubles? We see the answer in verse 1. It is their idolatrous faith. Their idolatrous faith. James says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Where you go in times of trouble tells a lot, an awful lot about where your faith lies. When a child is injured, right, they'll often run straight to their parents. And that's because they have confidence in the fact that mom and dad will take care of them. Uh, When an adult is injured, uh, they might pick up the phone to call 911. Or perhaps they'll look up the number of a good personal injury attorney, right? They'll turn either to the doctor or to the attorney as their source of refuge. Where do you go when life gets tough? What's your first recourse? Throughout the Old Testament, we see God consistently rebuke Israel for their willingness to turn to idols for their refuge rather than to God. Israel, of course, was delivered from Egypt for the express purpose of serving God alone. That was their calling as a people, to be dedicated to God in worship. God even went so far as to call the nation a kingdom of priests. And yet when times were tough, they were constantly tempted to turn elsewhere for their deliverance. This could be sometimes expressed in outright idolatry, such as when the people turned from God to serve Baal or Asherah or Molech. But very often it was expressed in other ways as well, such as when the people asked God to set a king over them, to rule them, rather than to be ruled directly by God. The reason they did that was because they had greater confidence in the protection that a human king could offer them rather than God. In fact, God even explicitly connects the request with their idolatry in 1 Samuel 8. He tells Samuel, 1 Samuel 8, 8, 7-9, he says, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they've not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they've done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods so they are also doing to you now then obey their voice only you shall solemnly solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them God says don't worry Samuel you're not the problem it's them this is just another expression of their idolatrous hearts on a different occasion, when the Assyrians threatened the land of Israel, the people turned to Egypt for help. And, and again, God saw this as an expression of their failure to trust Him. In Isaiah 31.1, He declares His outrage at the plot, saying, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. In other words, idolatry can take many forms. It isn't only expressed when a person carves a figure from wood or stone and then bows down and worships it. It occurs any time someone turns to something other than to God for their deliverance. This is why God declares in Jeremiah nine twenty three to 24 He says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord we can trust not only in the strength of governments or economies or technological advancements to protect us, it's possible to trust also in our own selves, to trust in our own ingenuity or our physical prowess and health or even our social standing and wealth to give us the things we think we need. As we turn into the uh, turn to the New Testament, we see Jesus himself warn against the danger of trusting in just such idols. For example, in Matthew 6, he warns his listeners against the temptation to trust money rather than God. He says, "No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other." He says, "You cannot serve God and money." If you want to know why coveting is a sin, this is why. It's not because money or wealth is inherently sinful, but because the trust of money is. And that's what makes wealth such a dangerous temptation for the Christian. It's so easy to turn to money as the solution to your problems rather than to God. Well, when we turn to James 4, we discover that it's this very sort of idolatry that's at the source of, of the conflicts that are occurring among the churches that James is writing to. James concludes... His exhortation, we saw this back in chapter 1. We saw how this works back in chapter 1. He concludes this exhortation back in chapter 1 to persevere through trials that they've been encountering by saying, verses 9-10, to he says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And he says this, by the way, immediately on the heels of warning his readers against the dangers of double-mindedness. James 1, 5-8, he says that if his readers are going to receive the wisdom that they need to persevere in trials, then they can't be double-minded. They can't have one eye on God and another eye on something else. And the idea with this warning so soon after is that money is the thing that's going to threaten this, thing, this single-minded devotion to God. And that's because in times of trial, it's so easy. So easy. Both for the rich and for the poor to think that money is going to be the solution to their problems. You'll notice that down in verse 8, in our passage today, James brings up this idea of double-mindedness again. And that's because he's returning back to this idea of trials again and how they're to be interpreted. You'll remember that back in chapter 1, the hypothetical reader says to themselves, you know, the reason I'm being tempted is because God is making me sin. And James says, absolutely not. That's not true, right? And now, after spending all this time explaining how their partiality and their lack of tangible expressions of love are contrary to the gospel, he now gets down to addressing what their real problem is and where their sins are really coming from. They're in the midst of these conflicts, and they're saying to themselves, you know, what's the deal? Why why is God putting us in this situation that's causing us to sin against one another? And James says, listen, the trials aren't the problem. Let me tell you what your real problem is. Let me tell you where these conflicts are really coming from. He says it's rooted in your sinful pleasures. It's rooted in your idolatrous faith. You trust in things rather than in God. Think about it. The rich brother is seeking to defraud his poor brother, or the poor brother is trying to wrongfully seize the rich man's wealth and to the degree that there's this hypothetical tribunal that they're having to hold to settle the dispute. The leaders are wanting to show deference to the rich brother on account of his riches. And regardless of his rightness or wrongness in the case, the point is still that the church apparently does not want to come to the aid of the poor brother. All they want to do is say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without providing any tangible care for that person's body. What's driving all of that? James already told us the answer, right? Our our faith is expressed by our actions, Right? Our faith is expressed by our actions. The things we truly believe will be revealed by what we do. That can come in the form of our speech, as in the case of the verdicts that church leaders render in this scenario, or it can be our physical actions, such as our expressions of generosity. What we really believe is going to be revealed by what we do. So then, when the gospel commands impartiality, And when it commands generosity, and then conflicts arise in the church because we refuse to be impartial or to demonstrate generosity, then what's the reason? It's because the law of liberty, the obligations of the gospel, are no longer controlling us. There's something else that's driving us, and what's that? James says right here in verse 1, Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. And that's actually kind of a weak translation, by the way. The word for passions here is better translated as pleasures. And that phrase, within you, it's actually more literally among your members. Just like James says up in chapter 3, verse 6, that the tongue is, quote, set among our members... Staining the whole body. That's the same idea here. So, the way it should be translated is Is it not this that your pleasures are at war among your members, meaning our bodies? There are these pleasures rising up from inside of us. Right away, our thoughts should go back to chapter 1, where James tells us that we're carried away and enticed by our own desires. This is the source of their conflicts, according to James. This is why they're failing to live according to these gospel realities, why they're even fighting amongst one another. It's because they have these wants, these desires, these pleasures, which they want to see fulfilled. And they believe that these desires aren't just desires, but needs. They believe that they must have these things or else. Now, or, or else what? It's hard to say. It all depends on what the person believes. is truly necessary in life. It could be physical life, as in uh, not death. It could be personal happiness or approval from others. There are all kinds of things that people think is the most important thing in life, the thing that they think they really must have or else. Point is, whatever that thing is, these Christians are seeing these as needs, and then they're turning to these idols to fulfill these needs rather than to God. And the result are these conflicts that they have with one another. A couple of weeks back, I, I made a reference to a speech delivered by Russian author Alexander, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in Sunday School. Uh, the speech was entitled A World Split Apart, and it was delivered at Harvard University as a commencement address in 1978. Uh, Solzhenitsyn, if you aren't aware, was incredibly outspoken about the evils of communism. In fact, he was outspoken enough that he was eventually exiled from the Soviet Union. Anyways, he was uh, an Eastern Orthodox Christian, incredibly devout in his faith from what I understand. And in this speech, he attempted to demonstrate how the communism of the East and the free market democracies of the West were actually afflicted with a common disease. And that's secular humanism. His whole point is to say, I don't care what your formal system of government is, if you deny such concepts as the Spirit and God and sin, you're all going to end up in the same place. It was meant as a warning, really, that so long as the West embraced secular humanism, it was inevitable that they would end up socialist, since they believed in the same philosophical foundations that led Marx to his conclusions. So he's making this critique, and as he does so, he's trying to demonstrate the moral bankruptcy of the West. How our abandonment of faith has resulted in an inconsistency between what we've traditionally said is right and what we really believe on the inside. The point being, our system is headed for a collapse. Where he's saying we're not going to maintain these morals because we don't really believe in them anymore. We've gutted the philosophical foundation for these beliefs, and so it's only going to be a matter of time before the whole structure comes down. Well, in order to help make this point, he makes a passing reference to the New York City blackout of 1977. Again, this speech was delivered in 1978, so the memory of that event would have still been fresh. But in case you're not familiar, New York City experienced a citywide blackout for about 25 hours in July of 1977. And it was 25 hours of absolute chaos. Some 1,600 stores were looted. More than 1,000 fires started. About 500 police officers were injured and around 4,000 people were arrested. Adjusted for inflation, the total damages from the blackout came in at around $1.2 billion. For some perspective, the Joplin tornado cost about $2.8 billion in damage. So a little less than half of the damage of an F5 tornado only this was done by people, and in the span of just twenty-five hours. Referring to this incident, Solzhenitsyn says this. He says there are telltale signs. By, or, I'm sorry, there are telltale symptoms by which history gives warning to a threatened or perishing society. Such are, for instance, a decline of the arts or a lack of great statesmen. Indeed, sometimes the warnings are quite explicit and concrete. The center of your democracy and of your culture is left without electric power for a few hours only. And all of a sudden, crowds of American citizens start looting and creating havoc. The smooth surface film must be very thin then. The social system quite unstable and unhealthy. The idea, of course, is that if electricity is the only thing keeping a society from plunging into absolute moral chaos, then it must be a morally bankrupt society indeed. And the blackout just managed to bring that up to the surface. It's demonstrated of what sort we really are. This is what trials do. They bring up to the surface what we really believe and what we really think matters. It's very easy, brothers and sisters, it's very easy to to care for others, to take care of their needs when things are going well. There's no great sacrifice that's required to care for your brother when the economy is running strong and you just got a raise. You don't really have to choose in that instance between God and your idol, since there's a sense in which you can have both. You can love God and your possessions. You can help your brother and still fulfill your desires. But when the market is down and jobs are hard to come by, And the guy who works next to you just got laid off? It doesn't matter how well you're doing personally, suddenly you're thinking twice. Do you really want to risk being generous when you could be the next one to get laid off? This, This second scenario is what James readers are experiencing. They have these trials going on around them, probably as a consequence of their faith, and as they're seeing these conflicts spring up in their wake, they're thinking to themselves, man, God must really have it in for us. He must really want us to sin to take away the conditions that allow us to care for one another. And James' response is to say, is is, is that what you think is happening? Don't you understand the trials don't force you to sin? No, they reveal who you really are. This is is their blackout. They're revealing what their faith in, in Christ is and it's showing that it's paper thin. And in this case, James says, what these trials are revealing is that you don't trust God. You think that something else is what you really need to survive. And that's why you're contradicting the gospel with your actions. And what is that something, again, in this context with these readers? It's money. That's why they're showing partiality, right? That's why they're sending the poor brother away empty-handed. Is because as they meet these trials, they think the thing that they really need, the thing that they think will save them, is their money. And what does that lead to? It leads to legal disputes, where the rich brother tries to defraud their poor brother, or where the poor brother makes a wrongful claim to what they're owed. It leads to a perversion of justice, which only sows more anger and frustration in its wake. Quarrels and and fights break out among them. It It all comes back to their wants. It goes back to the fact that they think they need something, something that they think God either can't or won't provide. And so they're going to seize it for themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, if you think about it, all sin, all sin, Really starts right here. You go back to the very first sin, for instance, and where was it rooted? It was rooted in the lie that God would not provide Adam and Eve with the very best he had to offer. It was rooted in the belief that God was cruel and unloving and that he was only issuing commands to keep the very best things for himself. And so if Adam and Eve are going to be truly happy, if they're going to find genuine fulfillment, then they had to make the choice to rebel against God and seize the opportunity for themselves. Which, of course, is exactly what they did. Now, you can call that pride, and you can say that all sin is rooted in pride, or you can call it faithlessness. But either way, the point is the same. We tend to trust in our own ability to provide for ourselves more than we do in God. And that's where all our sins and conflicts come from. Think about it. What is theft? What is theft but the refusal to believe that God will provide for our needs? We want something. But God hasn't given us the talent or the time or the resources to acquire it, and so we reach out and snatch it from someone else who he did give those things to. It's an expression of our lack of faith. God says, don't do this, this is wrong, it violates my character, and we say, well, I'm going to do it anyways because I need this. What is lying? But the refusal to trust God with the consequences of the truth, right? That's what we're all doing when we lie. We're trying to manipulate other people's perception of reality so that the outcome will turn in our favor. We'll get into this more in the next few weeks, but but we boast and we make all kinds of great promises in order to manipulate others because we don't trust God to give us what we truly need. God says, don't lie. It's contrary to my character. I only speak truth. And we say, sorry, God. You see, I really need this thing over here. So I'm going to... I'm going to go ahead and do this anyways. What is murder? But the refusal to trust God that He will punish the thief and the liar. Again, killing isn't wrong, right? It's murder that's wrong. God allows for someone to be put to death when the crime warrants it. But people aren't satisfied with that. And so they'll take justice into their own hands by murdering those who wrong them. At least that's that's what's happening if their murder is done in anger. There are obviously instances where people will murder in order to seize and take what they want by force. And in that case, it's the same thing as what I just said about theft and lying. They're killing because they don't trust God to take care of them. This is where all sin originates. It originates in the desire to have, but not to trust, and so to seize for oneself. And since such actions are unjust, and even, and even more so than just that, because they're committed against other sinners who share the same idolatrous desires, conflict is the inevitable result. Right? I mean, you take from me, well, guess what? I don't want you to take from me. Because what you want, I want too. And so now we're going to fight and even then supposing that I wasn't like that supposing that I was completely selfless in my thinking and submitted to God supposing that I was not idolatrous in my thinking we still got a problem because even still what you're doing is not just it doesn't glorify God do you guys understand? Jesus says he didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. And that's because there is already a division in this world between those who are aligned with God and those who are not. And he does not in any way intend to tolerate those who are not aligned with God. There's only one God, and so it all must conform to his will. So even when the desires of one party are pure, it still creates conflict when the desires of the other are not pure. Our desires are still not aligned. Even when my desires are pure and yours aren't, so we're going to have a conflict. Just like God is at odds with the sinful world, so it will be when even one party does not submit itself to God in faith. This is the point that James is making here. He's doing what he does so very well, and us take the fruit of an action and trace it back to its root. The church is experiencing these trials, and out of these trials are coming these conflicts. The church is saying, what's going on? Why is God making a sin like this? And James is saying, you don't understand. That can't be coming from God because God isn't like that. He doesn't delight in conflict, right? It doesn't flow up out of his person to do evil. And then he turns around and he says, but I'll tell you where it is coming from. It's coming from the fact that at least some of you are not submitted to God. Because if you are submitted to God, if you trust to God, then you wouldn't be sinning against one another in this way. Because this kind of behavior most definitely does not reflect the gospel. So again, clearly, there are at least some of you not submitted to God. And the reason why you're not submitted to God is because you don't really trust Him. Again, it's a matter of faith. Faith will always, always, always work itself up into our actions. And what their actions demonstrate is that they don't truly believe. Once again, this is the case with all conflict. Whenever there's conflict, then it's always evident that at least one party, if not both, do not trust God. The father comes home from work tense after a bad day. and He snaps at his kids because he does not trust God to provide. He too trusts in money or job security more than he does in God. Or if he's angry because someone else took credit for his work, it's because he put, he's put his trust in men. And so he desires their praise. And since that's been robbed of him, he's angry and he's taking it out on his kids. The woman who's constantly in political arguments with her family probably does so because she trusts in her government more than she does in God. Again, there's something that she wants. It could be economic security, maybe social progress, but either way, she thinks that government produces that, and so she argues with her family members to try to change their mind, again, so she can get what she wants. A customer argues with a store manager because clearly there's something that they want. The store manager pushes back because there's something that he or she wants. And right or wrong, the reason it's turned into a conflict is because, again, neither of them trust God to give them what they need. They believe that they must seize their desires by force or else they'll go unaddressed. So it doesn't matter what the Bible says about how they ought to treat one another. It doesn't matter what the gospel says about what they're to look like. They'll sin anyways because that is where their hope lies. It's in their desires rather than in God. Again, whenever there's conflict, it's always evident that at least one party, if not both, do not trust God. And that's why they'll hurt or defraud the one made in the image of God against the wishes of God. It's because there's something they want, something that they think they need, which they think God either can't or at the very least won't provide for them. Now next week, James is going to start to show us why this line of thinking is so utterly foolish. James is all about wisdom, remember. He's he's all about conducting yourself in a way that brings blessing. And James is going to show us once again that righteousness is always the better path. This whole attempt at seizing what you think you need is utter foolishness. It doesn't work. Just like we saw with sinful anger, right, how it doesn't work. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So it is also with all sin. Again, sin promises life and it brings death. Obedience is always the better option. We are blessed with the freedom and the ability to obey. Yes, there are obligations that flow out of the gospel, but these obligations are our law of liberty. They're a privilege to obey because they're given to us both for God's glory and for our good. James will explain how this works with our idolatrous desires next week as he explains the reason for his readers' troubles in verses 2 to 6. That reason, then, is going to help us understand the solution that he presents in verses 7 to 10. In the meantime, this is what I'd like you to do. I know that we're not covering a ton of ground in the passage today, and there's a reason why I want to take this slow, and that's because I want us to do a little exercise. Again, this passage is just just so incredibly practical that I really want us to take our time to think through and apply what this passage is saying. So I don't want to rush you. I want us to take our time so you can go home and really work out what's being said here. Because if you can get this passage down, and if you can start applying what it says, then I think many of your relationships are going to improve dramatically. And that's fitting for brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is what I want you to do. You know how uh, toward the beginning of this message I said that I use this passage all the time in counseling? Well, when I use it, I usually assign some homework to go along with it. Uh, Say that there's a a married couple that comes in and they're fighting all the time. Uh, I'll turn here, discuss this passage, and then I'll say, I want you to go home and and I want you to do this. And and I'm going to give you the same homework. okay? I often tell people that the preaching is really just corporate counseling. It's, it's group therapy. Uh, we're, we're taking the gospel and we're applying it to our spiritual wounds together so that we might be healed and conformed to the image of our Savior. Uh, so I'm going to give you the same kind of homework that I might give in couples counseling. Okay, The homework is simply this. You recall how back in chapter 1, James told us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. How he encouraged us, right, to pause and to check our thinking to see if it conforms to the gospel before we speak in anger. Well, I want you to do exactly that in relation to one or more of the conflicts that you're experiencing right now in your life. Maybe you and your spouse are fighting about one thing or another. Maybe you struggle with getting angry at your kids. Maybe you consistently struggle to get along with one of your coworkers. Whatever the scenario, I would encourage you to do this. Take some time this week. Uh, Maybe uh, if you have a quiet time in the morning, do it then. Or maybe take five, this is why I honestly encourage most of the time, maybe take five or ten minutes right after one of these conflicts. And take out a piece of paper and write down these three questions. Write down, number one, what do I want right now? Number two, what does the Bible say about this desire? Is it good or bad? And that's not a trick question, by the way. Not all desires are bad desires. Much of the time, we do want good things. Then number three, what am I doing to fulfill these desires? Let me repeat that one more time. That's, what do I want? Is it good or bad, according to the Scriptures? And then, what am I doing to get what I want? And then I want you to spend some time thinking about your desires in answering these, these, these three questions. And I'm not kidding, by the way. I really encourage all of you to go home and spend some time thinking about the things you want, the things that are stirring up quarrels and conflicts in your life. I know a lot of times... Stuff like this will happen in the pulpit. we will say, go home and do this, and like half the congregation or more doesn't do it. I'm telling you, do it. Go home and do it. Make the list. And then I want you to bring that list to church, and I want you to see how James addresses your answers to those questions over the next several weeks. I'm not going to tell you what James says to do just yet. Again, I want to go slowly here so you really have time to process this passage. And I think what James says next is going to be much more impactful once you see how your thought processes compare with the instructions that follow next. So if you want to benefit from these next couple weeks, again, I'd encourage you to do the exercise. Go home, write these things down so you can compare how you think with what James says next. Do you think you guys can do that? Are you willing to do that? I get, okay, I'm seeing some nods, Yes. Okay, good. I mean it. Again, go home, make the list, and let's see what James says next week. Let's go ahead and stop right there, and then we'll pick up as James explains the reason for his reader's troubles in part two of this passage, verses two to six, next week. Let's pray.